listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us every week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now and what is likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Now, we often discuss some pretty grim topics on these podcasts, but this week's episode is about a new book exploring the wonder of the natural world. It's by Kristen Olsen, and it's called Sweet in Tooth and Claw, Stories of Generosity and Cooperation in the Natural World. Keith, a bit of a departure from our usual topics. Tell me about this book and why it caught your attention. Yeah, so this is a book that's just been published here in Australia by Scribe. Christine Olsen herself is a freelance writer based in Oregon in the United States. And what she has done in this book, as with some of her earlier books, is really present a whole new way of looking at the environment. And as you say, it's a lot more optimistic than the (laughs) topics we normally get to cover. The phrase sweet in Tooth and Claw is a play on words. You know, there's a a well-known poem which talks about nature being red in tooth and claw and and the violence that goes on, and that Charles Darwin allegedly talked about violence and the survival of the fittest and that sort of thing. I think his work has been somewhat misrepresented by people who are saying, yes, you've got to be struggling, whole of life is a struggle, you either eat or you get eaten and that sort of stuff. She has presented, Christine Olsen has presented a whole new way of looking at the world. I'm a member of Long Now, which is based in California, and one of our popular presenters is Professor Susan Simard, who's mentioned quite early on at the beginning of this book. So Susan Simard is a Canadian who's a daughter and granddaughter, great-granddaughter of foresters on the western coast of Canada. And she followed the family business. But then she decided to do research into the way that forests operate. And she is now providing a new way of looking at nature. Now, it's highly controversial. And the stale, pale males that control science are having a bit of difficulty getting around Susan Simard's point of view. The essence of Professor Simard's viewpoint is that trees talk to each other. That's nice. It's nice. (laughs) So when you go into a forest, trees are communicating with each other. They're obviously not chatting in a way that we can hear, but they're sending chemical signals to each other. And you get these big mother trees in the forest that help the smaller trees to grow. And so when you look at a tree, if you ask a child to draw a tree, or an adult for that matter, (laughs) they will draw a flat line, being the earth, and then you'll have the trunk and the leaves, etc. Susan Simard is getting us to understand that an important part of the tree is what you don't draw. It's all the roots, and the roots can spread out incredibly long distances mm. and nourish the smaller trees. And so that's an example of what Christine Olsen is using for her argument, that in fact, the environment is not just the struggle of the fittest, and in fact, shows how one breed of animal or trees can actually help others to survive. George Monbiot, who writes on the environment for The Guardian, has a brilliant piece on YouTube. It's been recycled a number of ways, but I was looking 
at the most recent figure, 44 million views. Wow. And it's on Wolves Change Rivers. Okay. Just almost 30 years ago, wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone National Park in the United States. They had been removed and the deer took over. Okay. And so the deer multiplied without a predator and just simply was ruining the park. And then the authorities decided to reintroduce wolves. So the wolves chase the deer. The deer are still there. Of course. But they're not in the more vulnerable positions where the wolves can get them. Mm. So they've left whole areas now where they no longer graze. And those areas have undergone regeneration. And if you listen to George Monbiot, he goes through all these series of stages about how wolves change rivers. Because ultimately, without the deer ruining trees, the trees that survive, they provide stability to the soil. Mm. And of course, with all the trees, you bring in the otters and the beavers, etc. So you get this regeneration within Yellowstone National Park and the transformation of the park, including the rivers being strengthened and the riverbanks being strengthened because the trees and the grasses are there to maintain it. The bears love it because they can now get more fruit off more trees. The trees are taller because the deer aren't there to kill them. It's a remarkable, it's a short clip. Mm. The one that's most popular runs on for only four minutes. Yeah. But it is brilliant showing how all these parts of nature come together. And it's a bit of an inspiration. You know, if we get rid of humans and rewild, to use the jargon, Mm. rewild nature, in fact, nature will then recover. I wanted to bring in the human aspect, and you touched on it a bit about Darwin's theory of, you know, quote-unquote, survival of the fittest. Whether it's been misrepresented or not, it has affected the way that humans view the natural earth. Now, do you think it's made us more cavalier in that way where it's like, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I do this because, you know, the wolf's going to kill the deer and, you know, I don't have any stake in it. Yes, I think that reading this book shows the extent to which animals do cooperate with one another, how they can make the most of living off the local environment. It presents us with a whole new way of looking at the environment. She acknowledges Susan Simard as part of this movement and we have a number of other environmentalists. You've also got what's called the no-till movement So instead of ploughing the land, you just leave the land alone and you then plant straight into it rather than cutting it up. In fact, I spoke at the No-Till Annual Conference a few years ago. Really remarkable how the land is able to regenerate itself without the plough going through it. It's really, I think this book and the movement more generally is an attack on industrial-sized farming. Now, the argument about industrial-sized farming is that we've got so many people to feed The book itself makes the argument that there is no real problem there. The global food production is sufficient. I'm very much concerned about the global famine, which is emerging because of the the tragedy in Ukraine. So taking that aside, which is a disruption, she says in the book here, one such assumption is that we must keep increasing agricultural productivity to feed a growing world. But according to the Food and Agricultural Organization, of the United Nations, we already grow enough to feed 10 billion people. And so we've got more people than we've got on the planet. A third of that production goes to waste. That's the problem. So people don't eat everything that's on their plate. When I was growing up in England, I was always told to think of the starving children in Africa. Yes, so was I. (laughs) (laughs) The real problem is that we have a clear view about what a carrot should look like. And so if a carrot is any way deformed, then they can't sell it. 
Now, one of the ways, which is not in this book, but one of the ways that impresses me is that on the ABC landline is that the deformed carrots, instead of being discarded, are actually cut up and sold as slices. So you can go to somewhere like Woolworths and you can buy your carrots already pre-sliced, which makes it convenient for you. But what they've also done is to slice up food which otherwise would have been discarded. It's really fascinating to see that the food is being grown. We're just going to have to change our tastes somewhat. For me, it's a really fascinating book looking at at how we can feed people. And it's an optimistic book. Yes. We're not going to get 10 billion people on the planet. So we're already growing enough to feed a number that we will never reach in terms of the sheer size of this problem. Yeah, and on that, there's talk about how this analysis or view of nature does offer hope in the climate change era. How do you think it does that? I think it does in a number of ways because obviously the cultivation of animals is a contributing factor to that. And that's where also I've got to say the book is fairly controversial because it looks at the work of Alan uh, Savory, who argues that, in fact, you can change the grazing habits of certain animals that you're going to go on to eat, particularly the, the beef, the cows, cattle, change their grazing habits so they actually do less damage to the soil. Mm-hmm. But you are still eating meat. Remember, this is one of the big controversies. And she acknowledges in the book that the Savory approach is controversial but she has some sympathy for it and she's living in Oregon, so you'd expect them to be growing cattle out west there. So it is interesting that we may be able to cut back on some of the climate change problems by changing the breeding habits of the cattle. There's also the one I've seen of the methane that cows emit and trying to give them different foods and things like that. so that Feed them with Australian seaweed. That's right. <laughs> Seaweed's the key. Seaweed is the key. <laughs> so you, plenty of scope to be innovative. And, of course, a lot of people think that farming doesn't change very much from one generation to the next. But, in fact, farming is changing all the time. It's always on the lookout for new ideas. And I think the seaweed stuff is a really fascinating Australian success story. You're listening to Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. And this week we are discussing a new book that offers a different view of how nature works. Now, it's called Sweet in Tooth and Claw by Kristen Olsen. Now, the book delves into the topic of bacteria as well, which I found kind of interesting, and how it's been demonised in a lot of ways by humans. She says without it, though, we wouldn't be here. What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. She's spot on. I teach American students who have grown up in a super hygienic country. And it's made them more vulnerable, I think. Whereas we ought to be encouraging children to be playing around in the dirt and picking up, you know, all sorts of germs at an early stage just to build up their own resilience. And there's a whole new industry which is growing up regarding the microbiome Mm -hmm. in our gut. Mm. So again, it's very exciting to look at these new developments. So it actually gives you hope for the future that we can change lifestyles and actually live a more healthy life without necessarily being addicted to taking all sorts of tablets and pills. Yeah. How far-reaching can the impact of this book be? Do we have a chance of seeing it kind of permeate the way most people think about the environment? It's a very slow campaign. So the whole issue of rewilding, for example, is underway. There's a project with which I'm familiar in Scotland, actually from a pioneer in solar energy, and is now running a rewilding project where he is just handing over, handing back to nature a piece of land and seeing how it can regenerate itself. There's a movement that's underway 
Now, of course, it'll require us to change our practices. One of the issues with rewilding is that people expect to see nature areas nice and clean and well-organised, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. rewilding, by definition, is untidy. That's right. And so people say, oh, your area looks untidy, whereas, in fact, it's the human mind that comes along and insists on everything being clean and tidy. Raising yeah. children, by the way. You yes. know, we, we're do, we think we're doing the best thing for them, no, but we're not. actually making them more vulnerable right. because we're keeping them nice and clean. I was in the Daintree Rainforest recently, ah. and obviously a World Heritage Site, it's protected, you can't touch it. And I was kind of looking up at the canopy and I thought... God, it looks a bit messy up there. And then I realise it all serves a purpose. (laughs) Exactly. None of it is there, you know, it's symbiosis. It all works together. To me, this book isn't revolutionary in the way where I've just always thought that nature kind of all worked together. But I guess it is one of those approaches that some people didn't consider, I guess. Well, if you go back to Susan Simard, because I use her material in my university course at Boston University, she is in a sense creating a new way of looking at the environment. As I say, her original arguments incurred no end of displeasure from the stale power males running that part of the scientific profession. I think she's now seen much more as a pioneer and, mm. and she's getting a lot more support for it. It's taken her quite a few years to get there. So really, if you were to say, what is the really big change that's coming in how we think about the world? So this is your really grand narrative stuff. I would say that we are moving from a reductionist mindset to a complexity mindset. So with reductionism, which has characterized Western learning for, say, 500 years, we break everything down. Mm -hmm. So academics get to learn more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing. (laughs) That is reductionism. Uh, Mm. University courses, for example, we don't just have political science, it's political philosophy or international relations, etc. So we're breaking it down all the time. Now, the alternative point of view is, in fact, to stress the interconnectedness between subjects in trying to make sense of the world. And so this is the complexity revolution. I'm actually looking at doing another doctorate and looking at complexity theory. Because right. I just find it so fascinating. And I think that's going to be the big leap forward into the future. Now, whether we carry it out or whether it'll be computers and artificial intelligence who get there first. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the computers would just keep us on as toys or something, as pets. But that, for me, is the really big leap forward in seeing the interconnectedness of stuff. So in the case of Susan Simard, she is talking about how the trees work together, the mother tree, smaller trees that are growing up, etc. how nature is actually working together. For that reason, I find it very inspiring. It's not her first book. She's been on this sort of theme now for quite a while. And I think she is one of the most exciting writers on the environment. And for me, the advantage is that we're getting away from all this doom and gloom. Okay, Greta Thunberg does a great job in getting (laughs) us worried about the environment. But when you're looking at Christine Olsen's book, you're seeing someone who comes up with a positive and inspiring alternative. And maybe a lesson that humans can take as well in terms of how we interact with each other. And, of course, that's the other issue with Darwinist thinking, that it was then picked up by certain political philosophers which then becomes survival of the fittest. It obviously underpins Hitler's way of looking at the world, that Germany needs to rearm, it has to destroy its opponents, etc. So that sort of mindset is followed all the way through. We're seeing it in a contemporary sense at the moment with certain nationalist political parties that will talk about their country aligned. Mm-hmm. They're not interested in international cooperation. So that Darwinian mindset that it's a rough world out there 
and you've just got to make sure that you're not the victim. That is one mindset, but I think it's one that leads us into wars. You know, we've been dealing with Russia and Ukraine, et cetera. What we're looking at as an alternative way is looking at the advantages of cooperation and following the example of trees and how they all work together. And that gives us an alternative way of looking at the environment and an inspirational way of looking at the environment. I love that to wrap us up. Keith, thank you so much. And thanks for the break in grim topics as well. It was lovely. Looking forward to next week. Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nicolich. Listener.